You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, Nathan Gilmore, Danny Anderson, and Michael Farmer. Welcome to episode 130 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Dr. Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, and I'm hosting the show today, despite not knowing what we were going to talk about when I asked about it last week. <laughs> now, the gang's all back together. We uh, we booted Danny Anderson off the show. He's done. But hey. we, still have, we still have our old friend David Grubbs back from uh, retirement. The dead. David is a professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, and I can't believe I remembered all that. Loads as many years, months, whichever. (laughs) Also joining us as usual is Nathan Gilmore, Dr. Nathan Gilmore, an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in in, uh, Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan? Yes, I am. Is Is it sad to not be on with your... With your Emanuel College counterpart? Well, you know, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the oh, I can't even remember the real name of it, the Sectarian Review. There we go. The Danny Show? <laughs> I, I almost called it the Danny Show, but that's what he said not to call it. <laughs> so, of course, that's the only thing I'm going to call it. <laughs> By the way, listeners, we will... Sectarian forward, Review is an awesome name. We will forward any emails you send us to Danny that have to do with Danny. So if you have something to say to or about him, feel free to send it to our regular email address at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. And we'll, we'll right. make sure he gets that. Yeah, which is to say I'll walk across the hall. You're going you're gonna to print it out? <laughs> send it through the mail? There you go. My, uh, my mother-in-law, who I feel comfortable saying this because, uh, as the anecdote I'm about to tell makes, will make clear, she, she does not use the internet. Um, when she gets a, uh, when she gets a forward she likes at her email at work, she prints it out and mails it to my wife through the, uh, through the postal service. Nice. Which I think is kind of awesome in its way. Anyway, speaking <laughs> of email, we have some from listeners. David, why don't you go first? Read us an email from M. Limber. Uh, M. Limber? Limber? I'm assuming M is a is a an, an initial. Um, Maybe it stands for your re- I don't know. Well, the uh, it's probably something French because the topic is po- of the uh, the email is postmodernism of the Lego movie. So French. Uh, your recent episode on postmodernism was interesting and jived well with this take on the Lego movie, which describes as a, uh, describes it as a postmodern romp for kids. And then there's a link to an article. Which will be in the show notes. Yes. Quote, not only can you make an elaborate infomercial that appears to, but doesn't actually, undercut your corporate message, but you can also talk openly about translating a brand into a story, making it crystal clear that this is the film's central purpose, while directly denying that this is the film's central purpose. Unquote. 
Oh, it's a commercial, all right, and quite a successful one. This is in Limber. It's not for the toys, but for the brand and vision of Lego. It even has a good jingle, and the fact that the song is actually part of the Dark Lord's Opiate for the Masses won't stop it from getting in your head. <laughs> I'm amazed, frankly, that the suits let them make Batman an important but secondary and somewhat unlikable character, and that they let other protected properties like Gandalf, Dumbledore, Han, Chewie, Lando, 3PO make cameos. No Marvel characters, though their Lego game is in full swing around my house. Signed, M. And, I, and I've changed my mind. I think this is the person who's the, the head of the British Secret Service. <laughs> is that correct, M? Okay. Well, it's good to know that the Secret Service is engaging with Legoland. Have either mm-hmm. of you seen the Lego movie? No, I have not. But uh, I actually took my son to a grade school uh, weekend retreat at, the, at a Christian camp here in Georgia. And the theme was Everything is Awesome. And it was all Lego wall-to-wall, so... Fantastic. Good times. I've there are worse things movie, for but... children to play with, right? What now? There are worse things for children to play with. Oh, yeah, my son loves Legos. And now they have Ghostbuster Legos. I don't know if you saw that. Huh. So, well. to tie it into our episode last week. There you go. This I haven't the, seen the film the... either, although I've, I've heard it's it's uh, a very strange movie. Like, like just... Uh, you know, all these brands colliding and whatnot. Plus Chris Pratt. Oh. Who doesn't love Chris Pratt? <laughs> well, those who don't know who he is. He's Andy from Parks and Recreation, if you've seen that. Yeah, no. See, you would, you would have been way out of place on our metamodernism episode, David. <laughs> and at, well. this point, at this point, Michael's <laughs> saying, where's Danny? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss being able to talk about American Danny? literature and make, and make um, popular culture yeah. <laughs> references from after 1991. Yeah, yeah, because at this point you're going to make your pop culture references and you're going to hear crickets. <laughs> Beowulf, Beowulf, Beowulf. Yeah, there you go. Well, Nathan, we have, you have an email for us from Ross Vermeer. Yes, indeed. Ross says thus, gentlemen, thanks much for your continuing stellar efforts. I've just listened to your neighbor Rusicki episode, and it was excellent. I'm from northern Iowa, the descendant of Dutch immigrants several generations back, and I wish I knew more about their lives on the beachhead of the Great Plains. They couldn't have been much better prepared for dirt farming and howling blizzards than the Czechs. Anyway, I found the story and podcast very evocative indeed. Also, since you mentioned that next week will be devoted to that paragon of 80s pop culture known as Ghostbusters, you might want to have a look at the following interview, which I came across recently. And then there is a link to a an article called Ghostbusters and Oral History. Which will also uh, be on the show notes. Which will also be on the show notes. So thank you for the link, Ross. Uh, Michael, you got one more email for us? Yeah, this is from Logan Hoffman, who just listened to the episode on dystopian fiction. When you all were listing off utopian fiction, you forgot to mention Star Trek. That show, and particularly Next Generation, embraced this idea of a federation where there's no war, no hunger, and no poverty because money does not exist. Also, depending on the episode, religion does not exist, and society is all the better for it. It sounds, uh, this is me, not Logan, like a, uh, like a televised version of a, the John Lennon song, Imagine. The loathsome John Lennon song, Imagine. Awesome. Gene Roddenberry, he says, was a staunch believer in secular humanism, and he used his creation to express, some might say push, those ideas into the public consciousness. Anyway, that's my two cents. Shalom, Logan. 
I don't know if I've ever shamefacedly admitted this on the podcast before, but if I haven't, if I have, I'm going to do it again. I have never seen anything Star Trek. I've never seen an episode of the original series or Next Generation or any of the other ones, and I've never seen a movie. Oh, goodness. I grew up on Next Generation. I I don't understand how to talk to you. <laughs> That's how I feel about you, Grubbs. Fair enough. <laughs> Every time we speak, it's like an alien encounter. <laughs> Yeah, so so uh, let let the letters come in, let the anti Michael Farmer letters come in. I don't have a, like an, an objection to it. I've just never gotten around to watching it. And you know how when you're the only person who hasn't seen something, something in you wants to remain that person. So I have. Oh sure, sure. Not, yeah, not so much like out of anti Star Trek sentiment as just as the imp of the perverse, as Poe calls it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I never saw Gone with the Wind. Oh, you're you're better off for it. <laughs> I never saw Titanic. Oh, I haven't either. Shoot, I was going to say I'm the only one who ain't seen that. I, I made a either. promise to a friend of mine when when I was 14 that neither one of us would ever see Titanic, and I have stuck to it. You you still got your uh, no Titanic ring? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the topic of today's episode, which I did not announce last week because I forgot that I was hosting is C.S. Lewis, and I'm doing it for three reasons. Uh, number one, we've had an awful lot of listeners uh, write in and, and ask us to do a Lewis episode, and while the cruel aristocrat Nathan Gilmore tells them <laughs> that uh, we, we talk about him enough in our other episodes that there's no reason to do a a full episode on him, I'm a man of the people, and so I give them what they want. Uh, n- number two, David Grubbs is back, and I didn't want to tax him unnecessarily i thought i would lean him in or ease him into the coming back on the podcast by doing an episode he could he could do without too much research and then number three i went with some students and my wife uh last weekend to see at the guthrie theater a play called freud's last session which involves a imaginary conversation between lewis and freud and so i I kind of had him on the mind when it came time to choose a topic so um with that in mind um Grubbs, why don't you give us the elevator version of Lewis's life story and, and concentrate on his early resistance to Christianity and then to his uh, conversion experience later in life? Sure. Um, elevator version. Okay, the elevator just closed and things went ding and you felt that vertigo and now the story. Um, Lewis was uh, born in uh, uh, Ireland, I believe. Uh, but spent um, his boyhood uh, his boyhood education at a uh, a boarding school, which he does not name. Um, in his uh, his sort of spiritual autobiography, "Surprised by Joy." However, the fact that one of the main chapters that's about that boarding school is entitled "Concentration Camp," I think we can infer some characterization of it. At any rate, uh, the the boarding school had a strong religious element, and uh, one of the things that he recounts in, in "Surprised by Joy" is nights of these feelings of intense guilt and fear of hellfire. So years later, when he went to study uh, for his uh, college exams uh, with a tutor, uh, whom he refers to as Kirk or the great knock, uh, he 
found a kind of relief in Kirk's atheism. Um, Kirk was a rigid, uh, uh, rigid, huh, was a rigid rationalist. Uh, he was a very logical man. He immediately started with brutal Socratic dialectic, dialectic as soon as they met. And Lewis was making comments about how the day was nice or something. And, and Kirk just lit into him. Um, Kirk was an atheist and he was an atheist of a very, uh, uh, what Lewis says, an anthropological and pessimistic type. Uh, when he says anthropological, he means, uh, that, that branch of atheism that tends to view religions as a uh, phenomena of human cultures and, uh, using studies like, uh, James Frazier's golden bow, um, sees them as all related to natural phenomena and therefore uh, equally uh, not nonsense, that uh, even Christianity is ultimately just a fertility myth that has been attenuated to the nth degree. At any rate, Lewis found this uh, to be uh, a safe haven from the, the scary visions of hellfire uh, from his youth. And there's one passage in... Uh, uh, in Surprise by Joy, that I think helps to capture what his uh, what his ideas of religion were. Uh, this is beginning on page 171 in the edition that I've got. Um, the horror of the Christian universe was that it had no door-marked exit. It is also perhaps not unimportant that the externals of Christianity made no appeal to my sense of beauty. Oriental imagery and style largely repelled me, and for the rest, Christianity was mainly associated for me with ugly architecture, ugly music, and bad poetry. But what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed a deeper hatred than the word interference, Christianity placed at the center what seemed to me a transcendental interferer. So that's um, that's that's pre pre conversion C.S. Lewis talking about what he hates about Christianity. It there's no getting out of a Christian universe even by death. There's no getting away from it. It's ugly, and it's built around a God who messes with you, and you can't get away from him. And Lewis didn't want to be messed with. So we begin to see that um, that aversion weakening, um, and the weak spot, at, at least it seems to be in, in Lewis's biography, was his sense of beauty and his sense of what was sensible. Um, he became attracted to the beauty of medieval and Renaissance literature, which uh, largely grew out of uh, out of Christian Europe. And so he would admire things like the Fairy Queen or Paradise Lost and say, what a beautiful piece of art were it not but for the Christianity. <laughs> um, also, he came to admire G.K. Chesterton, whom he refer, whom he thought of as one of the most sensible men in the world, except for the Christianity. And so uh, he began, he began to be considering, reconsidering the beauty and the sensible side of it. Um, but eventually it was, when he began teaching at Oxford, that he kept running into Christians who kept challenging him on 
his assumptions that Christianity was could necessarily be dismissed as pre-modern irrationality. Um, one of those friends was uh, Owen Barfield, who uh, introduced him to the concept of chronological snobbery and basically taught him that you can't dismiss an idea just because it's old or just because it's new. Um, the relative date doesn't actually uh, have any weight when considering the truth of something. And then uh, other other friends who, who kept coming back to uh, our, the, the internal coherence of the Gospels, um, the coherence of, of, of Christian theology, the coherence of uh, an idealistic versus a materialistic approach to the world. And he gradually converted to being a platonic idealist and then a basic theist, a basic theist, and then eventually um, decided to go whole hog and uh, surrendered to the God who was there. Um, and this is towards the very end of Surprised by Joy. He says, people who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation, that is, the revelation that God's real, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I was then, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. And so that, that's, that's how he characterizes his, uh, his conversion, as the one who was afraid being caught and finding out that being caught was actually better than what he'd left. So that, that's, that's my short version. How long was that? Uh, I'm not sure I would have used the word short for it, but uh, <laughs> but that's okay, I... David. We missed you. Oh, <laughs> see, I didn't even once like quote Tolkien or nothing. Well, it is true that that was not as absolutely as long as it could possibly be. <laughs> Nathan, did he leave anything? Uh, did he leave anything important out? No, I thought he hit the high points. And I mean, one of the things that I I really like about his life story is that. It was a genuinely intellectual Christ, uh, conversion to Christianity. Uh, mm. And it's one of those things that, you know, I mean, uh, in the, I'll, I'll say mid to late 90s when I was sort of, you know, steeped in uh, postmodern this and postmodern that, you know, the, the sort of mantra going around is that no one has argued into faith. Uh, and C.S. Lewis, you know, sort of provides, well, honestly, kind of a postmodern rejoinder to that. Except when someone does. <laughs> Although I don't know, you could you could you could Freudianize. I guess I'm I am I am kind of in the uh, Freud versus Lewis state of mind. But you could uh -huh. you could Freudianize Lewis's conversion to be emotionally about the death of his mother, who was religious, right? Ah, uh, you could you could, but I mean, the fact of the matter is that you know, I mean, the way that he tells his own story, and again, I guess if you wanted to go Freud, you could say that he was. Uh, you know, compensating for something or other. Uh, but the way that he narrates it, and, you know, I've got no good reason not to take him at his word, uh, really does tell a story of an intellectual journey, first and foremost. Right. Mm -hmm. Also, well, it's just a darn good story, so I recommend Surprised by Joy. Well, yeah, yeah. It is, it is a very interesting, a very unusual conversion story. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Lewis has become immortal largely on the strength of his children's fiction and, and especially on the Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, Nathan, how did 
Lewis conceive of those books uh, in terms of the rest of his canon is, do you think he would be happy with his reputations resting on them? Well, I've got a couple uh, high points to hit, and then I'll let you guys kind of fill in some gaps uh, that I leave here. But one of them uh, is a very, very brief essay that was published as sort of a preface uh, to the collection called It Started With a Picture. Uh, And, you know, basically the essay begins with Lewis saying, uh, my editors asked me to tell the story of how I thought up all these stories. Uh, And basically I drew a picture one day, and it was a, a lion and a fawn. And I said, huh, someday I should write a story about that. And 10 years later, I did. He <laughs> said, I know that's not a very good story, but it's kind of a silly question to ask in the first place. So on one <laughs> level, he's very resistant even to explain, uh, you know, why it is that he started writing children's stories. The, the other st- side of that, though, is that among his circle of friends, uh, the, the, the famous Inklings, uh, there was some genuine resistance to his writing children's books, largely because he had already established a fairly good reputation as a sort of popular theologian, a writer of Christian apologetics. And the anxiety was that a series of children's stories, much less the allegorical and frankly, sometimes sloppy uh, allegory uh, that is the Chronicles of Narnia. But I will say what a delightful sloppy allegory it is uh, (laughs) sort of threatened to, diminish the seriousness with which people thought of him. Uh, so it's one of those things where he he was obviously serious enough about it that he disregarded uh, some of the cautions that were thrown his way, but it was also a process that you know he just kind of regarded as a natural outpouring of his writing career. It's not something that uh, you know he had any inclination to explain uh, in any sort of rigorous sense. Uh, so, I mean, David, I mean, beyond those two bits, uh, what would you say about the place of the Narnia books within his canon? Well, one, one is there was resistance to the allegory of Narnia, mainly from Tolkien. Yeah. Um, but it's not as if that's unusual for, for, for Lewis. The very first thing that he wrote, Pilgrim's Regress, was uh, an allegory modeled on Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. Um, his first major literary study uh, was, if I remember correctly, The Allegory of Love, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, again, about medieval allegories. His favorite thing ever was – well, one of his favorite things ever was The Fairy Queen, again, a big allegory. So you know, when, when he comes to Narnia, he's – in some sense, he's doing something – he's doing something that he loves and something that he – he values as an art form in itself. And, and if it's, if it's sloppy, um, I would say that it's sloppy in the ways that fairy queen gets sometimes because yeah, it's I, operating. I can, grant that. I can grant that. Yeah. It's, it's operating on so many levels that he gets his, he gets the colors on his palette mixed up. Well, besides He's that, not... I mean, what's our, what's our unsloppy allegory? Uh, Pilgrim, <laughs> Pilgrim's progress. No, thank you. Right. Well, right. All, I mean, all that, I'm, so, all I'm saying is that even as a kid, I, I could sense that something was off when Santa Claus wandered into the story. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I, you know, I'm not saying that there's some, you know, uh, Augustinian form of the allegory that I'm pointing to. I'm just saying that even among allegories, when Santa Claus shows up, you're not all that concerned with a, a tight, systematic fantasy world. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Lewis denied that those books were allegory. 
Oh, of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in in, in some sense, well, I, I actually I don't want to I don't want to spoil the next thing. Um, yeah. But well, I, I will say that Mrs. Beaver's sewing machine bothers me far more than the. <laughs> because because Christmas itself, winter without Christmas, is far more important to the story than is the fact that Mrs. Beaver has a contrivance with which she can show the clothes she doesn't wear. Uh huh. You know. that, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. And what does the <laughs> sewing machine represent, David? It doesn't. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems to be there for no good reason. What do you guys think uh, accounts for the enduring popularity of those books? They're good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I mean, I, I with a few more words than one. Uh, I guess that was two, but and one contraction. But uh, <laughs> I think that a few things are going on there. First of all, I mean, it is a very strongly mythological world that he sets up. I mean, in, in spite of the fact that there are sewing machines and Father Christmas showing up and you know, all, all sorts of little goofy moments like that that, you know, kind of wander in here and there. Uh, nonetheless, I mean, it is a series of books that, and, and you know, I've read a couple scholars on this. I, I, I don't remember their names, but they make the argument that in each of the novels, uh, Narnia passes through a sort of season of its cosmic life. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, that that's one of the things where as a kid when you are, you know, first kind of discovering fictional worlds. Uh, those are books that, you know, anyone who reads, you know, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and then goes immediately into Prince Caspian will notice that something is definitely different. Uh, it, there are common threads. It's definitely the same world, but something has changed. And I think that really that change of seasons is what strikes me the most as, you know, what, what stuck with me over the years about Narnia. David, what, what would you add to that? The, the engage, the characters, um, the characters are engaging. Um, I've, I've, uh, as a kid, I really, really loved the, the, the children who get to be the kind of reader proxies, um, the Pevensies, and then later on, you know, Eustace Diggory and, and, mm -hmm. you know, all, all, all the rest of them. Um, I, I I loved the way uh, I loved the way they seemed real. I loved the way that they would think thoughts that I'd remembered thinking, and I felt smart. <laughs> and and I felt like I was reading a book by someone who understood the way I ticked, and so there was a kind of extra plausibility to it that you know e even when you're delving into. Um, you know, kind of the the wilder side of the Narnian mythology, because the because the earthly humans who were who were watching it felt so real and relatable to me. I I was that much more pulled into the story, hmm. and you know that that's something that I only realized by going back to it and and appreciating the degree to which you know to the degree to which the reader the reader identification characters. Um, actually function as a as a way in um, that that I think still holds up really well. I haven't read them since I was a kid. I, I just remember being 
fascinated with this idea that this world kept going. Mm. You know, which I guess is is something you get with a lot of series that are set in the same universe but different parts of it. It it just feel it, it I just remember it feeling like there was an entire world even beyond the books. Mm-hmm. Well, people who uh, read the Narnian books as I did in elementary school and then never make it much further into Lewis's corpus may be surprised that he actually has another series, the the so-called Space Trilogy of Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength. David, I've never actually read any of those books. I think I flipped through (laughs) Out of the Silent Planet once, but I, I know I've never actually read them. So I need you to do the heavy lifting for me here. How do these books fit into Lewis's thought? And who on earth writes a popular science fiction series with a philologist as the protagonist? Uh, C.S. Lewis does. And it's the awesome. Well, that was an easy Um, question to answer. Yes. Um, I'm just going to talk about Out of the Silent Planet. um, Because he does... He does a lot in the Space Trilogy. It's it's big. um, World building, but also theological and allegorical heavy lifting and all the rest of that. And I, I guess you could read this as allegory too, but I'm kind of resistant to reading it as allegory because it's 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 an attempt um, out of the Silent Planet uh, is is an attempt to imagine someone going from Earth to another planet in a universe in which there is a God and there is a supernatural. Um, very often science fiction is, is characterized by once you leave planet earth, the religions don't come with you in some sense. Um, and out of the silent planet, they do. And in fact, um, it's our planet that is the one that is not in a tune, not attuned with the others. Um, we are the silent planet. The other planets that, you know, they've got with the program, um, they are inhabited and those people know we're the ones who don't. Um, so one of the, one of the interesting things that making, uh, the main character of, uh, out of the silent planet, a philologist, uh, ransom, uh, one of the interesting things about making him uh, a philologist is that his concern with learning the language of the, of the people on the planet and by learning the language, learning their culture and the way that they view the world, the way they view reality um, and themselves in it becomes very important. And the the book book is very good for um, reflecting on the ways that, that our languages actually contain our world in some sense. Um, because it, they contain the way that we can talk about it and the ways that we can think about it. And so Ransom, by learning this other language and analyzing it, um, not only visits this other world physically, he also is able to visit it in some sense intellectually and, and, and uh, relationally as well, because he can not only walk around on this alien turf, but he can see in it something of what the people who live there say. Um, and ultimately, uh, and I, again, no spoilers because you haven't read the book, Michael, um, at the end of the book, he, there is a, a renewed encounter with 
other figures from Earth who now Ransom having Ransom having been immersed in this other language and this other idea of the world that comes through the language, um, Ransom no longer finds Earth's language and particularly the world that the, the language of the modern world constructs. He no longer finds it intellectually compelling or attractive at all. So that when it comes time for him to translate what the Earth people say to the residents of the planet he's visiting, um, these God terms of the modern world end up coming out very ugly. And so it's, it's, I find it absolutely fascinating and totally worth, worth, worth reading. So would you compare it, I mean, kind of like to Gulliver's Travels in that respect? Yeah. It, it's 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 kind of like Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels, you know, visiting visiting uh, visiting another place is in some sense also visiting another worldview. I know you don't like that term, but you know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a better one. Um, Fair enough. You know, he visits another world, but in that sense, but at that same time, he gets to mentally visit another world and see his own as an alien. Uh-huh. It's, it's cool stuff. Have you read it, Nathan? No, I haven't. I, that's one of those trilogies of books that, I mean, has been sitting on my I really need to read those list for many years now, and I just haven't gotten to them. Good thing I pitched it to David. Mm. Oh, my... I, I would have told you to pitch it to him if you had pitched it my way. <laughs> <laughs> They're, they are connected, but not quite so connected as the Narnia books. Um, so that I think you can read them individually or even separately without a great deal of, um, without a great deal of loss. Oh, okay. Um, you know, if, if, and I had the opportunity to include out of the societal planet in, uh, in a course that I taught, uh, earlier this year. And I just I just taught the one, and I didn't even I didn't even refer to the others because I didn't need to. There's a there's there's a something very self-contained that Lewis is doing in that book, and you know I I didn't feel like I needed to push them to read all three in the way that I would say okay, and now you have to go read Prince Caspian. Well, the ones <laughs> right, the ones right. who the ones who liked it, I'm sure, will go on and read them eventually, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, in addition to his fiction, it, it seems that Lewis became almost by accident one of the 20th century's most popular apologists for the Christian faith. Nathan, what are uh, some of the high points of his apologetical works? Well, a couple things. Uh, one, I, I know that there is a great body of popular theology and apologetic writing that C.S. Lewis did. I've only read a sliver of it. I mean, kind of like I've only read the Narnia books. I've not done the Space Trilogy. Uh, but I'll, I'll make a couple comments on the two that I have read and thought about more than the others. Um, easily the best known is Mere Christianity, which began as a series of uh, radio lectures for the BBC uh, during World War II. And again, this is one of those things that, you know, as, as uh, someone who listens to NPR and to NPR podcasts, uh, this really blows my mind that, you know... Uh, I guess, you know, even a, a wannabe Anabaptist like me can say, yeah, that would be one cool thing about having a state church, uh, <laughs> is that, you know, the <laughs> the the national <laughs> public radio of the time uh, aired this series of lectures 
uh, on, you know, an argument for Christianity. Uh, the basic upshot of mere Christianity, and I'm going to oversimplify it uh, brutally and probably immorally here, uh, is that there is a universal moral impulse to the human species uh, and that the moral impulse is only intelligible uh, if there are transcendent standards of good, bad, right, wrong, uh, benevolence, evil, so on and so forth. Uh, it turns into a meditation on the four cardinal and the- three theological virtues, uh, but really a lot of it rests upon the idea that human beings in our dealings with each other uh, have a sense not only that I do not prefer what you just did, but what you just did is wrong, or what you just did is not merely pleasant to me, uh, but I can point to this or that action as laudable, something to be emulated, something that is genuinely good. Uh, so, you know, folks have labeled uh, mere Christianity as the the apologetics of universal moral appeal. There's some other labels that get put on it. Uh, it's it's one of those things, and, and this is just a, an anecdotal thing, but... Um, Probably at least half a dozen times, uh, and it actually happened here recently, so I've got to be careful not to name names here. Uh, I'll have a student, uh, and, and this has happened at Christian colleges and state universities, uh, who want to impress me with their intellectual acumen uh, because I'm the professor and you want to look good for the professor. And they will start reciting the, uh, so the uh train station bickering anecdote from the beginning of mere Christianity without mm. naming C.S. Lewis and hope I don't notice. <laughs> <laughs> and so far I'm, I'm, I'm six for six here. If indeed it has happened six times so far, I've managed not to call any of them out because honestly, that would be bad form. <laughs> that would be objectively mean. That that would be that would be. I mean, that would be lording over them. You know, the fact that I've read Mere Christianity three or four times myself. Right uh, now, the other book that I've spent some time with and actually uh, wrote a paper about in a graduate rhetoric course is The Abolition of Man. Uh, this book takes a very different approach. It's more of a comparative philosophy book. Uh, what it argues is that. There is something peculiar to 20th century ideology, and, and I keep it very broad there because he extends it to fascism and communism and liberalism, broadly conceived, uh, that basically renders people hollow, to use T.S. Eliot's famous phrase. Uh, Men without chests is the phrase that Lewis himself uses. His idea in the abolition of man is that the older philosophies, and you know, he he famously and and in my mind, infuriatingly, uh, uses the Chinese term Tao to talk about this sort of universal stream of moral teaching that comes from China, as well as Northern Europe, as well as ancient Rome, as well as ancient Greece, as well as biblical literature. Uh, but the Tao, as he as he refers to it. Uh, holds that there are certain moral virtues uh, that constitute a good human existence and that when virtue gets supplanted by value, in other words, something that one chooses, something that one can switch out for this or that alternative value, uh, then something happens to a society and, you know, thence the title of the book, The Abolition of Man. The idea of good human existence uh, is 
abolished. You have to replace it with something else. And Lewis's argument is basically that it gets replaced with things that are inherently inferior to the old ways. So in both of those uh, works of apologetics, and again, those are just two out of a, a fairly broad range, Lewis is very, very interested in moral philosophy. He's very, very interested in defending, as, as David said earlier in the episode, sort of the old ways against modern liberalism. Uh, now, like I said, I mean, neither of these books uh, really approaches things from a way that I would philosophically. Nonetheless, I do have to tip my hat to the fact that they are so widely read, that they are so influential, and at the very least, they raise the same sorts of questions that, in my mind, more compelling books like Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences tend to raise. Um, David, I, I, I've not read, you know, Miracles. I haven't read, you know, some of the other famous C.S. Lewis apologetics. I mean, are there any other points in his corpus that you would want to point to, or do you want to contest my readings of those two books? No, sounded fine to me. Um, <laughs> the uh, two, two, two more things that I would push. Um, Tolkien's Tolkien, uh, not Tolkien. Ah, see, <laughs> I, I look over at my bookshelf, and my Lewis is next to my Tolkien. My chocolate got in my peanut butter. Oh no! Um, uh, one of one of Lewis's favorite things is pointing out chronological snobbery when he sees it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, the the preeminently modern tendency to to feel that having assigned an idea to a period is have to is to have adequately dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Oh well, that's yeah. just enlightenment. Oh well, that's just medieval. Oh well, that's just romantic. And um, basically, I mean, these are not Lewis's words, but the, the the observation that he makes when using the term chronological snobbery is to say that ideas are not milk. Um, you haven't <laughs> made a statement about whether it's good or bad simply by reading the date on it. Right. Um, you actually need to taste it. You actually need to test it and ask the question, did that idea... Uh, did that idea cease to be current because it was actually um, dealt with in some substantive way, tested and found to be wanting, or did it simply fall out of fashion as something prettier came on the scene? Mm -hmm. And the other side of that coin, of course, is ideas are also not fine wine. They don't always improve with age. Well, exactly. That's, that's, that's why I want to say that chronological snobbery is, is simply assigning a date doesn't make it good. Saying that it's medieval doesn't mean it's bad, nor does it mean that it's awesome. It's right. Just so medieval. ideas are whiskey, not wine, and not milk. Once they're in the bottle, <laughs> once they're in the bottle, they don't change that much. Is that, uh, is that about right? Oh, well, I don't know. I, ideas have lives of their own, too, right? Yeah. But they don't go bad. Uh, they don't get better. Right. And I yeah. tend to take in way too much of it. No, hold up. <laughs> <laughs> um, so chronological snobbery I'd point to, and also, and this is just briefly, um, uh, a, a more aesthetic approach um, to uh, to apologetic, um, because because beauty and joy were a big part of initially Lewis feeling. Um, initially Lewis feeling uh, 
wanting to reject Christianity because he felt it was ugly. Later, he felt it compelling because he found it beautiful. And and I think you continue to see that in in his apologetics and also in his fiction. This uh, this idea that there there is a recognition that we aren't walking brains. Um, we do have feelings. We do seek joy. We do seek beauty and fulfillment. Right. And and, and that saying that that Christianity is really beautiful is itself actually an argument. Right. Right. And that's not something that ends with Lewis either. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. figures as disparate as. Jamie Smith, David Bentley Hart, John Milbank are all making that appeal to aesthetics as the heart of a sort of postmodern apologetics. So, and Christopher that, Hitchens' brother. Explain. Christopher Hitchens' brother claims to have been converted to Christianity um, by the existence of beauty. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Mm. I, di- I didn't know if that was a joke or if you're being serious. No, I can't remember. Peter Hitchens, I think. Okay. Uh, Mm, it's your story. I don't know. How original are the ideas in those in the two in the two treatises Nathan talks about? How how original are they to uh, Lewis? Well, what I what I tell my students uh, is that C.S. Lewis would be the first to say that he has almost no original ideas, and that's a good thing. Uh, yeah. And honestly, this is one of the places where I not only admire C.S. Lewis but try to emulate him is that, you know, he saw that in his historical moment there was some need for new speculative ideas. There was a greater need for someone to translate the old ideas into a language that modern folks with their chronological snobbery, as David so nicely highlighted there, uh, could palate and could enjoy. Uh, mm-hmm. And honestly, I you know, that's one of the places where absolutely – uh, despite the fact that I that I gripe and grouse about certain things in Lewis, uh, I'm definitely I definitely think of myself as someone who, in my own small corner of the world, is trying to continue that mission. Your 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 methodology, not the content of your thought. Uh, some of both. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, that's the thing. I mean, I, what I tell people is I, I gripe about the ten percent of the places where uh, I think Lewis gets it wrong, and Lewis mistakenly thinks he's right. The other ninety percent. I'm pretty much doing what he's doing. Because <laughs> that, that, that appeal to universal morality has always bothered me, and it bothers me more every time a student tries to use it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, seem, it seems yeah. so clearly false. Like, I, you know, we could say that there's a universal tendency to fix some morality, but yeah. but he goes further than that, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, and I mean, and I'm going to go ahead and pitch one of our other shows. I mean, in my interview on Christian Humanist Profiles with uh, Charles Hackney, uh, I went over went after that idea. Uh, And yeah, I mean, Michael, you just named part of the 10 percent where I differ strongly from Lewis. (laughs) Though I think he's more well in in, in the area in, in, in the places where he deals with that more extensively. I think he is a little bit more nuanced. Mm hmm. In, in the way that he in the way that he reads it and and does allow for a great deal of variation between cultures in 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 their in their moral codes but also tends to see a, a kind of a strong through line so to speak yeah yeah and and this might be the fault of the editors more than the fault of Lewis but the fact that abolition of man ends with that infuriating appendix where he lists you know, moral virtues and then has snippets from major world religions that support it 
Gross. Uh, that <laughs> that just gives me a rash. I and actually, now that I say that phrase, I actually went after this idea with uh, Matthew Lee Anderson as well on a different Christian humanist profile. So apparently, it's just uh, what you do. Yeah, it really is. I like and like I said, it's funny because the other ninety percent of what Lewis does, I'm probably right on board with him. But it just happens that I'm more entertaining <laughs> when I'm being a grumpy mad dog. So I, <laughs> you, you know, I, I have not read Abolition of Man, but I've gotten in arguments with people who bring up that notion of the Tao. And it, it sounds like he's saying that beauty has some sort of universal standard as well. Ooh, that I don't remember. David, do you have a memory of that in Abolition of Man? Does not ring a bell. All right. But, but again, again, that I, 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 I need, I need to refresh my mind on that before. Yeah, and, and I, I, I reviewed it, it a little bit, but I don't remember that bit. Okay. Yeah. That That's kind of a topic for another podcast. Uh, the yeah, listeners, theory. if you have read Abolition yeah. of Man recently and you remember that bit, please write in and refresh our memories. I mean, that's the thing is that Lewis is in general, to me, to, to me he has so much ethos for being a a careful and a meticulous and a nuanced thinker that if if I ever remember, yeah, that that seemed that seemed like a sloppy assumption. I immediately want to go look it up to see did I miss something because he's he he's he's typically so good. Well, and it's not, not fair to blame Lewis that he <laughs> is every conservative college freshman's favorite writer. <laughs> you know, and 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 that they they take his ideas and make them more conservative than they even than right. they are and we'll get to that now, in a little while yeah i was gonna say now michael don't steal my thunder now i <laughs> always do it. i know i'm sorry and i wrote these questions <laughs> i know well let's let's move on before we ruin nathan's day before we sit on nathan's hat um and we'll talk about the area of lewis's output that's probably the least well known to the average reader uh, david you share an academic field with him so i'm going to mm. ask you to talk about his literary criticism what what innovations did he make in early modern studies and to what extent is his work still important and read and admired by academics in that field i i don't know that a lot of it has um has entirely aged super well but i don't think that's necessarily the fault of of lewis's scholarship itself um in some ways, the fact that later in his career he became more and more um, associated with evangelical Christianity as as an apologist, in in some ways, I think m- can can make him seem seem a lightweight and easily dismissible. Right. Um, however, uh, the first major thing that he wrote, Allegory of Love. Um, was uh, it, it actually put the medieval allegory genre in, in some sense back on the map in the way that um, Tolkien's Beowulf essay put readings of, of Tolkien or readings of Beowulf that took the, the narrative and poetic elements of it seriously, not just the historic elements of it, um, back on the map. Um, it's easy to to dismiss medieval allegories as kind of dull exercises 
Um, we don't have a taste for allegory as a culture. Why would I want to go learn a dead language in order to read an incredibly, incredibly long one? <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things that Lewis does in Allegory of Love is is argue, actually, no, this is this is pretty great stuff. Go uh, go to, to go dig into this. Um, the one I've interacted with most is a book of his uh, entitled The Discarded Image. Uh, an introduction to medieval and Renaissance literature, um, all about worldview. Um, in some sense, what uh, his character Ransom does when he goes to an alien planet um, is kind of what Lewis wants to do to you to prep you for the Middle Ages. Um, he, he kind of entered into the book to be a kind of Middle Ages, um, I don't know, atmospheric survival suit <laughs> <laughs> um, that helps you understand, you know, what, what did the books that they, what were the books that they read to find out how the world worked or how the human mind worked? Um, what, how did they imagine the world functioning, um, physically and scientifically, uh, geographically, uh, where did they think they fit in the cosmos? I, those kinds of things are what the discarded image deals with. And as an exercise in, discarding chronological snobbery in particular the last uh the last chapter of that book is actually about that point to say when you go read medieval and renaissance literature remember that your period is also a period <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh you will be you will more profitable uh more profitably read this stuff if you engage with the ideas um with as much sympathy for the perspective of the people living it and writing it um, as possible. And then uh, his early literature in 16th century, excluding drama, one of the least interesting titles in the world. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, is, is kind of the same thing for Elizabethan England. Um, what discarded the discarded images for the middle ages, uh, 16th century literature, or English literature in the 16th century excluding drama kind of is for that. It's been a long time since I read it, but what I remember, what I remember most from that book is uh, him talking about how it's, it's very easy for people in the modern age, in the modern scientific age to see um, laws against witchcraft um, as signs of signs of brutish ignorance um, but he said, now imagine you're in a world where you actually think that other people can through the secret things that they do at home, injure you and your children. Is it not prudent <laughs> to do something about that? Um, that an impact on me. And, and he, he sort of invites you to consider, um, the, the moral tenor of, of eras that are different from yours in some ways. Nathan, that actually makes me think that he's probably a bit more nuanced when he talks about universal morality than than undergraduate regurgitations of it. Oh, uh, I can understand tend, that. Yeah, tend yeah. to tend to pre- present because he's he's such a big believer in um, appreciating as much as possible how how an era, how a, a a world, so to speak, how a worldview looks from the inside. Mm-hmm. And taking it on those terms, that 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 seems to be me to me mainly his 
his that's that's his trick so to speak right. that's that's his thing um let's let's go into that world and go native and and try to see it as much as possible um, okay like the folks who are in it well and honestly david i mean that marks a difference between the way you read lewis and the way i read lewis you read mm-hmm. you know the the apparently broad and sloppy strokes as you know things that deserve further investigation because it couldn't be that the same person would make these two kinds of statements uh, <laughs> I, I i think that two guys were writing under the same name there was professor lewis and then there was jack <laughs> and i think okay. that at times you're absolutely right i mean in in english literature of the 16th century exclusive of drama he is a meticulously careful thinker a meticulously careful critic. Uh, and then Jack comes out and he says, you know, well, look at this. I'll excerpt two lines from every major world religion and show you that they all have common virtues. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's just two Let's approaches the to the same figure. <laughs> and done. <laughs> you know, My work here. He, he never got tenure, right, at Oxford? Oh, I didn't know that. I think that's true because he left it to go to Cambridge. I knew that. <laughs> well, part of that is because they gave they they basically they offered him an endowed chair that was basically designed to entice him. Oh, I see. Maybe he did get tenure. I, I, for some reason, I was thinking he didn't, and that this was a big point of contention. As this episode should make clear, I am not a C.S. <laughs> Lewis expert. I've read a few books. Yeah. I mean, he 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 took the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge, and the very first thing he did he did was deliver a series of lectures about how um, the midi- the Middle Ages and the Renaissance aren't really that different. So it's it seems to me as if <laughs> make, making a chair that joined those kinds of things was almost like, yes, we know you. Come here. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, that, that's one of the more famous episodes of academic headhunting I can think of. <laughs> and I would say that Cambridge won in that case. Oh, I, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who would disagree with that. Well, um, to get to the question that we were avoiding asking a moment ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, re- real quick, Michael, can I add one more thing about the his big 16th century volume? Because I... I read that one for my comps, and the idea that really struck me when I read that is his notion of a golden age of literature. Uh, And it's one of those things that kind of like all the way back when we were talking about the notion of classical, uh, whether it be music or epic or, you know, any genre, uh, his notion of the golden uh, really helped me to sort of conceptualize relationships between Elizabethan and Jacobean uh, between you know medieval and renaissance his idea is that a golden age doesn't necessarily mean that it is better than that which comes before or that which comes after but rather that the conceptual framework loosens up enough that people are doing genuinely new things and that when mm-hmm. you read it uh, you are, are seeing sort of the leading wave of whatever the next literary phenomenon is so that what comes after might become more refined, more sophisticated, so on and so forth. But the golden age is an age of sort of novelty and creativity in a way that later, you know, more complex forms perhaps are not. Uh, so I, I just wanted to get a plug in for that because, I mean, 
that was one of those things when I was studying for my own comprehensive exams that gave me a conceptual handle to grab onto when I was trying to make sense of all that literature that I had to talk about in those terrifying oral exams uh, <laughs> that really served me well. The only uh, a bit of his literary criticism I've read is the discarded image, which I think we talked about in the medieval Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah, episode. yeah. And, and I I found that to be a very helpful book for a person like myself who finds medieval culture and literature very very foreign. Right. That 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 book made it feel substantially less foreign. Not in the sense of he's saying they're just like us, but in the sense of here is here here are ten different conceptual frameworks for you to hint, build your understanding of. The medieval era on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you've got a copy of discarded image in one hand and McIntyre's after virtue in the other hand, you can make a good run at the medieval period. Mm. Can I make a pitch real quick? Go for a book, uh, reading the classics with CS Lewis edited by Thomas Martin, huh? uh, came out in 2000. Um, Baker academic was the publisher, but it's a series of essays. Um, Reading literature with C.S. Lewis, classical literature, medieval literature, chapter on Spencer, chapter on the Renaissance, chapter on Shakespeare, um, chapter on Milton. It basically runs down genres and periods in which, um, and and from what I can see looking through the, some of these names I recognize, people basically distilling what C.S. Lewis said about those areas into one nice handy paperback that looks well on a shelf. Oh, neat. Yeah. So there you go. All right. Well, now let's move on to the question. We've <laughs> Sorry <been> about that. <laughs> uh, Lewis, as everybody knows, is among the two or three most popular writers among ev- American evangelicals. Probably if he's second to anyone, it's probably only to Tolkien who was an equally strange choice. Yeah. Um, Lewis was definitely not an evangelical. Nathan, what separates him from this subculture that reveres him so much, and why do they revere him so much anyway? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I mean, the surface cosmetic differences that you can see. Uh, one, I mean, he liked to tip a pint. Uh, he liked to smoke some tobacco. Uh, you know, those are things that, you know, you can't do on most evangelical college campuses, my own included. Um and, you know, that that's just part of his life and part of his biography uh, in a way that we would be remiss to neglect. Now, beyond that, on, on a more substantial level, if you will, uh, Lewis is – I mean, first of all, I mean, he, he is one of those figures that I can definitely call, without crossing my fingers, a Christian humanist. Uh, he is one who is a man of, of massive learning uh, and who really read – the literature and the philosophy and the theology of other periods with an eye not to prove his superiority to them. Like you might find in, uh, Oh, what's that? What's the name of the book now? Uh, how then shall we live by Francis Schaeffer? But instead to say, (laughs) let's put ourselves underneath these masters, learn what we can from them and then apologize to them and the parts where we can't follow them. Uh, and you know, that, that approach to reading old books like I said, I mean, it is 90% of how I conceive of my own mission. Uh, and for that reason, I mean, it, it's because my own niche in the Emanuel College English department is largely the old books guy. Uh, you know, I teach Greeks and Romans and I teach old English and, you know, um, 
when people come to my office, it's so that they can borrow books from more than 500 years ago. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, but, you know, for that reason, I mean, I can kind of say uh, from my own experience, not a personality or an intellect of the magnitude of Lewis's, but as someone who's trying to do the same kind of work, uh, that evangelicals tend to be obsessed with what is new, what is current, uh, what is relevant, uh, to take a pot shot at that publication. Um, whereas <laughs> Lewis is very, very much interested in bringing back what we have forgotten and saying we are ultimately poorer for having forgotten this really good stuff. Uh, beyond that, David, I mean, what differences would you point to? Um, there were, there were some things that, uh, um, some, some doctrinal, uh, things that, that most modern evangelicals, um, at least, uh, at least historical would have signed off on that, uh, Lewis didn't, um, he didn't sign off on inerrancy for one thing. Oh yeah. Um, and, and however, that was not actually something that he really talked about much. Um, Largely because he didn't, because he didn't want to paint a target so on himself for that. And when <laughs> asked about it directly, he would say, "I am not a scholar of the biblical languages," <laughs> <laughs> which is also what I say when asked about it directly. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> um, so you know, in 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 some sense, uh, you know, that would be you know, if he'd made a big deal about it, that would have been something that evangelicals of his own time would have had a fight with him about. But he didn't want that fight. Mm -hmm. Um. It, you know, yes, he ne he never actually signed up and said, "Hey, I'm just like these guys," um, because he wasn't. But at the same time, nor did nor did he nor did he work to position himself so as to cut himself off from the evangelical culture that was that was existent in in America when he was alive. He he was a, a correspondent with many prominent um, evangelical figures. Um, in America, it, well, he was a correspondent with many people just in general because he wrote back everyone. Um, but he he never tried to. He might he might disagree, but he never tried to cut that off. So it's if if the evangelical tolerance of Lewis seems surprising, there was also a Lewis tolerance of evangelicals. So mm. maybe it's maybe it's a kind of historic. Um, I don't know a, a historic respect of of people who are, who are somewhat different in that sense. Do, mm -hmm. do you get the feeling that his conservative evangelical fan club today is aware of the distinction between him and them? Um, not always because a lot of people know nothing but Narnia, but even in Narnia, you'll encounter, um, you'll encounter some places where you're like, Oh, wait, what, what did he just do there? Cause I think <laughs> if I read that allegorically, it ends up with, wait, no, he couldn't have said that. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's some of that, but I think in general, um, Jack, uh, C.S. Lewis is like, he's like crazy uncle Jack in some sense, <laughs> you know, there's, there's something a little different about him. That's kind of dangerous, but it's always exciting when you're with him and you learn a lot and, you always feel the better for it. And, so, and now the so temptation keep, is there so to you keep wanting the to have his lion line. <laughs> Yeah, he's not a tame C.S. Lewis. 
you know, and, and and that that is actually something that 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 I I resent is is if I ever see attempts to kind of characterize C.S. Lewis as you know evangelical without an asterisk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's he's not a tame C.S. Lewis. Respect him for what he was. Agree with him where you agree with him, and be honest when he didn't. Um, get he's get not, your own intellectual if you don't like it. Well, that, that's the thing is he he's not a god. It's not as if the fact that C.S. Lewis disagreed with us means that we now have to defend ourselves in some way. Right. You know, he's not the evangelical pope. You know, he's though, not, though, that that is how he is often cited. Fair enough. Fair enough, but that's a mistake. Yeah, and and he would call you on it. No, I, I, I'm, I'm sure he would. <laughs> I, I just I just struggle with not resenting C.S. Lewis because of the sort of person who likes him, or one sort of person who likes him. Because obviously, both of you like him quite a bit. <laughs> I like what I've read about uh, read of him, but mm-hmm. but like I, I I so associate him with a particularly strident sort of conservative freshman. That that I I I sometimes have to remember that that's not him, that is somebody who likes him. Right, right. Well, I mean, just like I mean, the sort of oh, how, how do I say this without getting in trouble? I don't, so I'll just go ahead and say it. The neocon Tolkien is not the sum total of Tolkien. <laughs> yeah, and I have I have even more problem with Tolkien because I haven't liked the Tolkien I've read. And so there, there's nothing that pulls me back in the other direction other than my everlasting respect for David Grubbs. There you go. <laughs> well, let 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 that keep you thinking charitably of him because you were the thin he, blue line between me awesome. and hating Tolkien. Ah, uh, I hate to hear that. I I just I feel like some of these people would probably rather Lewis be Francis Schaeffer. Right, right, which, like I said, he is precisely not. Right, it's the great glory of him that he is not. No offense to our listeners, who I, I know we have many listeners who, who admire Francis Schaeffer. I don't really, I admire some of what he was trying to do at Labrie. I don't admire his thought for the most part. Well, he's, Schaefer, Schaefer's, a dif, Schaefer's a different kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he's, he's, com- he's comfortable broad brushing in places where we want fine detail work. Yeah. Yeah. And but how many people would say that of us? Yeah, well, yeah. In this in this episode. Or in any <laughs> other. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I don't know. So Schaefer but. fans, I'm a hypocrite. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's all, I mean, if there were Schaefer if there are, I don't want you all to go away. If there are Schaefer fans among our listeners, I mean, hopefully they've already seen that I've written on the blog, you know, a, a fairly straightforward criticism of how then shall we live. So, I mean, I don't think it was a great mystery before this point. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it, in, in particular, a, a response to to the un to the unreflective notion that how then shall we live is itself an exhaustive takedown of all of the kind of, all all of the the all the ideologies and philosophies and so forth that he dealt with. Right, right. And, you know. and also, we should. I, I have not read anything else from Schaefer except "How Shall We Then Live." So, I mean, it, it's not fair for me to uh, say I don't like Schaefer, but I certainly do not like that book. Hmm. 
Well, and, and, and I was being I, I a little too Jack and a little, and not enough Professor Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, for, 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 for me, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I want to, I want to give Schaefer, I want to give C.S. Lewis when I disagree with him, you know, I want to give him a place in the conversation. Mm-hmm. What I resent is the people who want to replace the conversation with that person's work. Right. Does that, does that make that. sense? Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I have read How Shall I Then Live and I Now Understand Western Culture. Yes. Right. Or even right. I have read How Shall I Then Live, so now I understand, oh, let me pick somebody he doesn't like, Kierkegaard or Thomas Aquinas. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Michelangelo or Dante or... <laughs> Yeah, I, I have read this book and I have accomplished all of the background on intellectual history that I need for life and can go on from there to more practical things. And right. I don't think most Schaefer fans really believe that. Okay. I, I, at well, least I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this is all a prelude to our inevitable Schaefer episode <laughs> where, where we read that book and just, just wail on it for an hour. <laughs> well, we should read that book and then read another book that we haven't read and see if he's the same guy. Oh, that's fair enough. You ever see the video series? Uh, started to, but got bored. It was so 70s. Oh, you gotta, you got to <laughs> love those, uh, those spats he wears. Yeah, that was neat. Anyway, too bad Lewis didn't do a, a series like that. That might have been that might have been more fruitful. Like like mere Christianity on the radio. Yeah, but it was that wasn't an overview of Western culture. Oh, fair enough. Well, um, as this overview of Lewis should have made clear, he has a remarkably varied category uh, catalog. So let's uh, let's. As we take as we go out, let's take a moment and talk about one of his works or ideas that we think is going to continue to endure in the Christian world or the literary world, world at large or whatever else. Uh, David, let's start with you and then just pass it over to Nathan when you're done. I think that Lewis is going to continue to be a gateway drug for Christian humanists. <laughs> Um, I think he's going to continue to be someone who, by simply being who and what he is, will um, attract Christians to um, the life of the mind, uh, the value of intellectual endeavor, the value of literary endeavor, um, because he's he's kind of a trifecta that way. <laughs> um, he will help keep English departments in Christian colleges, you know, stocked with majors. Um if nothing else, just Lewis being what he is, is I, I see it as a great good um, as in terms of books that you need to go read. Um, I would recommend The Grief Observed, but I don't want to talk about it. I have read that one. Yeah. But I read it when I was a callow youth. I'm not sure I even had the uh, possibility of understanding A Grief Observed at 16 or however old I was. I read it when I was engaged to be married. Nice. We saw Up the week after we got married. You know, it has that scene at the beginning, the eight minutes of her dying. <laughs> so, if, both both bad ideas, right? Uh, or a perversely good idea. <laughs> In some sense. But, yeah. Nathan? 
one idea that pops up in a couple places and, and I love so much because it does give sort of the evangelical C.S. Lewis booster so much trouble. Uh, and also because Lewis himself was so slippery on it, uh, is this sort of veiled universalism that, that runs through both the ending of The Last Battle, the final Narnia novel, uh, and also The Great Divorce, uh, his, his, I'll just call it an allegory of the afterlife that he, that he published. And one of the things that I enjoy most about that, I won't lie, is, uh, when someone does try to present Lewis as, you know, the evangelical poster boy, if you will, uh, to bring up those books and, you know, just kind of see how people react to that. And one of the nice things about it, I mean, is that it's not a, a sort of brazen, uh, oh, and I'm going to get in trouble here, but what else is new? A Rob, it's not a Rob Bell style universalism where he just comes out and says, Hey, you know, everyone gets to go to heaven, smoke them while you got them. Uh, no, it, it, it's more of a hint. Uh, it's a possibility. It's something lurking there just beyond the horizon of what he'll say outright. Uh, and like I said, I mean, that makes it one of the, one of the threads in his corpus that I enjoy the most. Michael, what do you got? I think one of his most interesting ideas, and I know he didn't come up with this, but he is responsible for popularizing it, if nothing else, is the idea that Christianity is the true religion, but in the fulfillment of the promises of the Hebrew Bible, Christianity, the coming of Christ, also fulfills all these other religions. And so it ends up being, mm-hmm. I think I think his term is the, the true myth. So mm-hmm. the other myths are not so much... They're they're not on the level of Christianity in the sense that there's such a thing as Zeus, but they're all on the level of Christianity in the sense that they are all human beings pointed towards some higher supernatural reality. And it just so happens that Christ was a real man who really did this stuff instead of just being a story. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very healthy way to look at comparative religion from a Christian perspective and not be... um, on the one hand, a Fraserian, as 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 David talked about it earlier, in the sense that all these mm. myths are just, you know, longing for the mother or whatever. Yeah. Or they're all about corn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And And on the other hand, being a haughty Christian who thinks that all these other religions were designed by demons, in fact, it could be that these religions were put there by God in order to point toward Christianity eventually. I like that. Maybe that's still, maybe that's still uh, ego, egomaniacal for Christians to claim that, but it, it seems at least less egomaniacal. <laughs> I don't know. Or at least a different flavor of egomania. Mm. Well, that's it for our discussion of C.S. Lewis. Nathan, what are we doing next week? Well, next week, uh, David Grubbs will be in his cocoon turning into Dr. David Grubbs. Uh, so Michael and I are going to be doing a point one episode on Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. Good times. Meanwhile, Nate, uh, David will be, we are not amused in ourselves to death. <laughs> <laughs> what day, what day are you going to be, um, well, I, instead, uh, instead, I'll be flailing my arm, my arms, and yelling, "Are you not entertained?" <laughs> when are you? When are you do, can you tell us the day and time you'll be uh, defending? In case any of our listeners want to pray for you, David. Uh, Wednesday. 
um, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So that'll be the day after this goes live, which means by the time we record on the Thursday, uh, we will know if you're a doctor or not, and we will announce it. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you will be. Just to mess with us. Because, I mean, who do you you know who, uh, who got to the defense and then didn't pass? I have heard cautionary tales of advisors <laughs> doing that for their advisees' own good. I have heard that too. Before we go, I want to tell – before I did my defense last year, I spent weeks and weeks reading horror stories. And I would like to tell my favorite one both for you and for the listeners. So remember, no matter what happens to you next week, this won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so, this this was a uh, this was a defense that took place in a room a lot like the UGA English Library, which I know helps only the three of us and nobody listening. But uh, it, it's a room with let's say floor to ceiling bookshelves, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the student was terribly nervous, like so nervous she couldn't speak. Like they asked her questions, and she sat there for forty minutes not talking because she, she was just too nervous to speak. So her so her major professor took her out into the hallway and talked to her and calmed her down and brought her some tea or something, you know, and and, and she. Finally, felt up to doing the uh, doing the uh, defense. So, so she goes back in, and, but as she comes in, her coat catches on one of those floor-to-ceiling bookshelves and pulls down every book on the shelf on top of her committee. <laughs> wow! Now I read that online. I don't know if it's true. I don't know who it happened to. Maybe to someone who's listening. But uh, remember, David. No matter what happens to you next week, it won't be that bad. Yeah, because I'm not going to wear a coat. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to take steps. <laughs> well, listeners, if you would like to wish, wish David Grubbs good luck or uh, tell us what we left out on the C.S. Lewis episode, if you feel like we were too hard on Francis Schaefer, or if you want to suggest some other topic, our email address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our web address is christianhumanist.org. Until next week, this is Michael Farmer for Nathan Gilmore and soon-to-be Dr. David Grubbs saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. Hey, I have something to say. Hey.